Today, the girls welcome Mr. Ryan Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios. Millsap's production clients include Disney, Sony, Warner Brothers, Universal, Lionsgate, Paramount, and HBO. Launching his studio in 2017, Millsap has been a success at putting Black Hall on the map and is already planning to expand to twice its size. With newly announced plans to move into the UK, he's making a name for himself as a global entertainment strategist. So listen up while Girls on Film talks movies in the time of corona quarantine with Ryan Millsap. wanted to jump in and thank everybody that is looking and listening to us on SoundCloud and Stitcher and Spotify and iTunes. We are talking today to someone that knows his stuff, Mr. Ryan Millsap, Chairman and CEO of Black Hall Studios. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, Sarah. How are you? I'm blue today. So, Ryan, you haven't met Teresa Roth. Hi, Teresa. Hi, Ryan. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. She and I started Girls on Film about a year and a half ago. And uh, she came to lunch with me at the DeKalb Chamber of Commerce's annual meeting, um, which we bought tickets to see you, to make sure we saw Mm. you. That's fun. Yes, I saw you from afar. Yeah, we had the the crappiest seats. Um, We were way in the (laughs) back. We're in the nosebleeds. Exactly. Mm. Teresa and I got on the phone and and we were talking about how kind of we were we were a little bit like Ugh, the coronavirus uh, lockdown is we have fatigue from it right now a little fatigue. Well, it's been over a fortnight, so yep, it's adding up. Time is adding up. It's starting to feel. I think for people, you know, a fortnight is the length of a lot of people's emotional time horizon. Right two weeks behind and two weeks ahead. Mm -hmm. So now you're right in the middle of emotionally where for a lot of people, this starts to feel like eternity. So Ryan, what are you doing, you know, to like fill your time? Well, you know, I'm, I'm out at my farm in social circle. So in many ways, this place was built for a quarantine. Um, I'm out here with my three daughters and interestingly, my ex-wife, they all live in Los Angeles, but uh, when this was at the very beginning stages, before there were lockdowns, before there were travel controls, before really schools were shut or anything, I sent them plane tickets. I said, get on a plane, get on this plane that I, I bought you these tickets tomorrow and come to Georgia. This is going to be a much better place to wait this thing out. And at first they thought I was nuts, but... Um, then the day they left, 
their school got canceled. Wow. And so then obviously, you know, since school closures in California, things have accelerated pretty rapidly. Um, but, you know, this is the first time that my ex-wife and I have lived under the same roof uh, since uh, six years ago when we separated. So it's been a very fascinating uh, experience because it's been so good. Like we, you know, we've both um, had our own journeys and done a lot of our own psychological work and spiritual work. And, um, you know, that really is paying off right now where we can be under the same roof and have a, a wonderful family time. We were laughing about the Instagram posts of of uh, Bruce Willis and Demi Moore who are oh my god, those um, are so funny. Social isolating with their families together right now. Yep, yep, in the in the green and white pajamas. Yeah. I know. I saw that. <laughs> so we were we were we were laughing oh, and relating. Yep. That's right. All that to say, my you know my I've got my three daughters out here and my ex wife, and so we're we're spending a lot of time. Um, you know, it's like an extended spring break for us. We're riding four wheelers and swimming to the pool and fishing in the lake and going on long walks. And in many ways, this may end up being some of the greatest memories of their childhood. I don't know if they know it yet, but um, it'll certainly be some of my greatest memories of their childhood because we're all getting to be a uh, cohesive family unit uh, in a way that we haven't done for many, many years and maybe never will do again. It's amazing. It's amazing that you say that because my youngest son He's 21 and he's here. And I know for a fact that, you know, he's, he's going to get an apartment in August in Savannah where he goes to school. And I know that he will never be here again. He'll never live here again. So this is, this is it. Um, and it is a time to absolutely cherish people for sure. I think one of the things that, uh, Teresa was, was asking was we were interested in, you know, what does, what does a studio chief do when he, when his studio is closed? And there's probably a lot. Yeah. I, well, I mean, on the studio front, I mean, we're a ghost town and there's really not that much to do. It, it, the, the facility is, is being managed by a skeleton crew uh, we have security, obviously, 24-hour security. But after that, you know, it's very few bodies and the place is crickets. From a macro standpoint, obviously, we're having to do a lot of cash flow uh, analysis and cash flow management because we're going to have a very devastating 90 days where, you know, my revenues are off like a million dollars a month. And that makes a big difference. Now, the good news is we have cash and we can weather the storm. And um, I think all signs are that as soon as we can get back to work, you know, we'll get launched like a rocket ship because the amount of of uh, content that's being absorbed right now over the Internet at people's homes, the amount of Netflix people are watching, the amount of HBO, Showtime, Disney+, Hulu, every medium the content is being absorbed obviously much more rapidly than it's being created because right now nothing's being created. So on the other side of the coronavirus, all of the pipelines will have been exhausted. Everybody will have watched their favorite things more than once and they will be dying for new content and there will be a huge surge in demand for the creation of content, even beyond what we were already seeing, which the streaming wars had already 
instituted a global content war years ago, started by Netflix. But this will just accelerate all of that. So, you know, the, the backside of the coronavirus economic impact, there will be companies and industries that are devastated in ways that they will never recover. Right. You know, you know, what's going to happen to student housing at universities if the universities and the students all say, you know, we could do a lot of this online. Like we don't need to live yep. at the school. Um, you know, what's going to happen to office space when the uh, companies say, wow, you know, we were really all productive from home. What if we just stop leasing office space and everybody's happier and more productive? Well, that could have devastating effects on the office industry. Right. In real estate. Right. So, you know, there's you can keep going down the list of all the things that could be hugely negatively affected. And and what I'll tell you is that the movie industry and television is not going to be one of them. I mean, this is this is going to, if anything, have continued positive impact on the need or the demand for the kind of content that is created at places like Blackhall Studios. I have a question for you. If looking, you know, we've been juggling different technologies for this and that. And, um, you know, Court and I have been, you know, ripping through uh, different platforms, Squadcast, Clean Feed, others <laughs> for, for, for stuff to uh, use as a platform to communicate on. And if you could create a perfect entertainment platform different than anything out there right now, what would it what would it be like? Well, that depends if you're asking me if I could create something, snap my fingers and have it in a short term, like turn it on right now, or if I was then trying to build something for a longer term uh, success story. Those are those are slightly different. I'll start with the first one. So if I could snap my fingers right now, I've, and I've actually been in conversations to try to do this, we've been searching for a handful of comedians, and they'd have to be comedians slash writers, that would be willing to go and live at Black Hall and quarantine themselves at Black Hall and create content, two kinds of content um, every day. One would be like a 30-minute segment that'd be like a Saturday Night Live kind of skit scenario where they were just telling funny stories or telling, you know, doing funny skits about the coronavirus and, uh, and, and staying at home and basically taking what everybody's trying to do in memes and all the stuff that's floating around the internet and actually turning it into pro programs that people could watch and laugh at and laugh at ourselves in the midst of all this crisis. And then additionally, um, do a, a reality show attached to it where we're actually documenting all of the process of them doing these things every day so that people could, uh, follow their lives and follow their quarantine at Black Hall, et cetera. I think there's a, a huge demand for, um, Time sensitive, information sensitive comedy content. Yeah. Right this minute. That's not, that's not being met. So I, I think that'd be like an, an immediate kind of a more programming situation than necessarily a platform. But when you think about platforms, you know, Netflix is, has in many ways paved the road. And from, from this point, in my opinion, it's going to be innovation off of Netflix and somebody could come along just like obviously there was coffee long before there was Starbucks, but Starbucks just took coffee to a totally different level from a cultural standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, from a distribution standpoint. And they didn't invent coffee, but they invented an industry 
about how you sell coffee and the experience around coffee. Right. I think that there's there's opportunity for people to innovate off of Netflix and create um more user-friendly interface. Like one of the things that I find on like Netflix is I think it's hard to find programming. Right. That that I might find interesting. Like, there's got to be better ways to search this stuff. There's got to be better ways to organize this stuff. There's got to be better ways to categorize, and then there has to be better ways to provide real time feedback, such that uh, Netflix or whichever platform it is is getting all this real time feedback about what consumers actually want to see more of, and they can start pipelining all of that. And I, and so I think, I think that there's going to be much better user interface, much better user friendly, um, data stream, uh, mind reading kind of situations where, uh, we just can find, like if I say, I want to see more documentaries on, I watched, let's say we watched Tiger King, like everybody on the, in America is doing right now. And then you say, I want to see 10 documentaries on tigers. Well, there's got to be a way to aggregate that a lot faster. And and right. then if you start doing that kind of uh, niche search, you'll start to find that Netflix just runs out of content real fast. Right. And then you understand why there's so much demand for content and why Netflix is spending $15 billion a year trying to fill that pipeline. So anyway, I, that, that's kind of what I would imagine, like kind of the next gen, next gen platform is going to be, uh, you know, something akin to Netflix, but that is like the... It's like what it's like what Steve Jobs did with the iPhone and cell phones, right? We had no idea how much more user friendly a cell phone could be until Jobs rolled out the iPhone. We have no idea how much more user friendly a video streaming platform can be until somebody rolls that out. Have you seen Quick Bites or Quibi? Quibi, yeah. Quibi. Have you seen it? Katzenberg. That's a, that's Katzenberg and and Meg Whitman. Yep. It's launched this week. Yeah, I mean, the timing is obviously really good, um, other than the fact that Quibi is really intended to be something you watch in between normal life things. So like Quibi, you might watch a, a Quibi on the way to work on the train, Yep. right? You might watch a Quibi at your lunch break because you had to have, you had lunch with some coworkers, but then you had 10 minutes to spare and you could, you know, bang out a couple episodes of three, you know, three minute episodes of Quibi. I think it's a great idea. I think it really fits the the niche, uh, particularly of of the uh, millennial interest in short form storytelling. And my guess would be it would be very successful, but time will tell. I mean, it's going to be all about the quality of the content. The idea is obviously really good. Ryan, can I ask you a question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, from the days of long time ago, Marshall McLuhan and the whole global village and all this communication will bring us together. What do you think with everybody programming, essentially his own station, his own stream of entertainment, what will it do for um, mass appeal when everybody's watching the same thing like they used to? You mean, what's it going to do to culture? Yeah. Right. When we don't have Walter Cronkite to tell us, you know, how the world is. And I mean, we've already seen so much of that. Obviously, you know, 30 years ago, there were three three channels to watch in America. <laughs> right. You know, so we've already seen so much disaggregation there. And I think that just continues on the Internet. Um, you know, obviously, every generation grows up with different pipelines of information. I watch my young girls 
um, consume so much content off of YouTube. Right. That is their peers making content, right? I, I'll come in and I'll say, what are you watching? They're like, oh, these two girls, they do all these funny skits. And I, and I'm like, on a, on a channel? They're like, no, just on YouTube. And they're sitting there watching it. And, you know, these girls, they're probably 15 years old and they are making money on YouTube streaming. So there's, there's a great, um, egalitarian nature to the access to the uh, portals. Right. So you you right now could go out and create content and post it on YouTube. And if it was good enough content, it would find an audience and that audience would pay in the form of advertising to YouTube and YouTube would pay you for being a content creator. And suddenly you'd created a channel. So what is it doing to culture? Well, that's just becoming part of the fabric of the culture of the youth that they just expect to be able to uh, distribute without interruption. Whereas a generation ago, getting the distribution was a huge, huge lockout for most people where there was just no way to, there was no way to get your music on the air of a, of a radio station. There was no way to get your content on the air of a television station. Right. Those guys had monopoly on the distribution and that has just completely disintegrated which is incredible for innovation. And well, the other thing about it, Port, is that you see how interconnected our culture is such that if something is of interest, it will get distributed everywhere. Like I don't even, I don't, I don't watch the news ever. You know why that is? Because of anything of interest will find its way to me, right? I've got all of society filtering out what's important right. from a news perspective. I don't have to do any of that filtering because my friends will forward it to me on text. I will. They will forward it to me on Instagram. They will forward it to me on Twitter. They will uh, forward it to my email. They will. You know, they, they, this will get distributed. It will get posted on LinkedIn. And before I know it, I know everything that I need to know about news, and I didn't have to be a filter. That's true. And that's true. And that's true of content as well. If something is of interest and something that is is culturally significant, it will make the rounds, and everyone will see it. Well, you know, my kids watch a lot of YouTube as well. And being an old school television guy, what about quality control or just this mass of what's supposedly entertainment out there? Some of the stuff they watch is absolutely inane. They love it. I know. Right, but they love it. Think about it. But, but, but think about it. It's like a reaction. So I'll give you I'll give you another interesting reaction. So, you know, my, I have a 15-year-old daughter. I have three daughters, 15, 13, and 9. Wow. My 15-year-old daughter, she for Christmas, she wanted a camera with film. And I said, why do you want a camera with film? And she said, well, I want to be able to take pictures that I have no idea what they look like until mm -hmm. they get developed. Nice. Wow. All right? And so for her, that was a huge, amazing novelty. So in a similar way, YouTube is like a hearkening back to the very earliest form of movies where guys were just like taking cameras and going out on the street and making silent movies that were completely inane. Like you go back and watch this. It was, it, how is that entertaining? Well, it's entertaining because it's humans on film and that's novel. So now we've gotten to a place where there's such high quality of production value. So Game of Thrones is now television. Whereas 20 years ago, Game of Thrones would have been the coolest special effects on the planet. True. And so the, the production quality has gone so high that I think this generation loves the human element of just the baseline 
uh, no digitization, no um, post-production, no special effects, just human beings making shit up in front of a camera. Right. At least that's part of my theory on it. You know, I totally agree with what you're saying, Ryan. My my niece, who is 17, um, I asked her one time, what's her favorite TV show? And she said, I don't have one. I only watch YouTube. That's what's happening. Yeah. Now, the really fascinating part is YouTube's trying to figure out how to monetize this because they have incredible web web traffic volume. And and they've now tried to create television shows and try to, to try to be a medium for high quality content as well, because it's hard to monetize all of that YouTube content in a way that is uh, predictable and valuable from a publicly traded company standpoint like Google, because, you know, of course, Google owns YouTube. And so they've got all this web traffic and they just have to try to figure out how to monetize it. It hasn't been simple. Uh, but that is that is generationally where the guys are where, where the where the young people are putting their eyeballs. Ryan, I want to ask you a question. Um, yeah, I really I love your take on the fact that YouTube and the means of distribution in the world today have let everybody be a star or let everybody have their moment. Um, I had not thought about it that way. Um, Port and I have complained about the the crappy quality on YouTube. And, and I love your perspective. It makes me see it from a different, a different way. Um, with all this communication happening and all of the availability right at our fingertips, um, this, this leads me into back to quarantine, back to Corona um, and entertainment and communication in the, in the day of pandemic. Um, you had talked about uh, wanting to uh, utilize your studio space for with the state, and there's been some frustration with that because people aren't taking you up on your offer to do this, and they're not organized. I mean, you can see what our governor has said. This is only my opinion, by the way, um, about. Uh, you know, he didn't know how the virus was spread and he's the governor and we knew this. <laughs> we knew that it was airborne. We knew that it, it could be spread uh, from people that were just carriers and didn't show any symptoms um, with doing very, very minimal research. And our governor did not know that. Um, why is there such a communication disconnect in government? When everyone else is communicating really, really well in sophisticated ways and in unsophisticated ways. Well, what we're seeing is the, the, the strength and weakness of an American freedom that other countries don't have the level of freedom, but they have a much higher level of social control. And so you see that like on the American freedom side, which is all the individual citizens, the communication is excellent and fluid. And, and information gets to everyone very rapidly, um, through each other, through the, through the, uh, disintermediation of the internet. Now, government systems are inherently bureaucratic and systematized and, and intermediated, right? So they are controlled, highly, highly controlled. Um, and in a time of crisis like this, when you have freedom of information that's flowing so rapidly, combined with a bureaucratic, streamlined, intermediated system, 
that has is going through something it's never gone through before and hasn't really prepared for. Now we could we could do the critique on our own society about whether or not um you know why it is psychologically we weren't willing to prepare for pandemics because um Bill Gates made it very clear years ago in a um in a in, in a now highly um identified uh what is it a, a TED talk. TED talk, right? A TED talk. He, he like outlined, here's what's going to happen. George W. Bush actually had a, a lot of things to say in his presidency about pandemics, but nobody really cared because they, nobody knew what a pandemic was or had ever lived through a pandemic or had any idea right. what kind of Im- impact it could have. And so now we've experienced the impact. And so, but in the middle of it, you know, government just hasn't been through this. And so I have a huge amount of grace for the fact that they don't, you know, they don't know what they're doing and, and they, and they don't know what they're doing inside of a bureaucracy. And bureaucracies are like gigantic aircraft carriers, and they're very difficult to get moving in a different direction. Whereas the disintermediated information is like a bunch of speedboats, just like, you know, we can all turn on a dime and go in a different direction as a pack. And then we're frustrated that the aircraft carrier is not following. Uh, But really what this is showing us is that we just need to rethink um, our relationship with viruses, um, our social um, interaction with um, pandemics and how to prepare for those. And, and I think that right now at the federal level, people are rethinking that obviously at the state level, people are rethinking that they're trying to figure out how the federal level and the state levels interact and interface and work together and coordinate. They, they obviously haven't figured that out yet. Um, but you know, what this is showing us is that we need somebody at the federal level who is in charge of pandemic, um, preparedness and and maybe that is fema i don't know right you know uh, maybe that is some function associated with the cdc that somebody you know there's a there's an arm that's a practical arm that's coming up with how you actually deal with this kind of stuff but then you you, but then we're also learning that pandemics are not uh just uh epidemiology they are also economics and so then you can't come up with a a pandemic protocol that doesn't in- involve uh, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury Department, and the entire banking system because they are failing miserably, in my opinion, um, at their at their approach to how to deal with this economic crisis from a national level. And again, I have a lot of grace for it because nobody's ever been through it, and and this is not really what. Um, bureaucratic personalities are wired for bureaucratic personalities are wired for the 99% of the time that things are linear and the 1% of the time that things are chaotic, you need totally different personalities in there solving, solving problems on blank sheets of paper. And that's just not the kind of people that end up in bureaucracy or government. So it's a, you have a very difficult problem in that you have, um, you have a, a major chaotic event and you don't have the right personalities at the center of that uh, when it comes to government um, or bureaucratic institutions. Does that make sense? That's why, like when we've talked about... We all want to jump in. Yeah, go ahead. Teresa, go first. Uh, Ryan, if you were governor for a day, what would the first thing be that you would enact? Well, obviously a day isn't going to get anything done. But if I, you know, but if I was like, you snap my fingers and I'm the governor, right, the second... It could be a long day. Well, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's snap my fingers. And today, like I get a call right now and they say, listen, um, I know this is weird, but you're going to have to be the governor. 
and we don't know what those circumstances are, but uh, you know, so I have to get in my car and drive to the governor's mansion or the Capitol, and then I have to try to triage the situation. And that's really what this is. It's a triage, and it's a triage on a number of fronts. The, the number one most important front is, of course, health. So on the health front, um, the first thing we need to figure out is testing. And testing is a problem everywhere in the world, although some places have solved it a lot more rapidly, like South Korea has come up with some really good testing methods. And so one of the very first things that we figure out how to do is how to get South Korean experts on the ground in Georgia to help us figure out how to test this stuff. We have to coordinate with the FDA. We have to get those tests approved. But I think as the governor, you know, most likely you could uh, get some of those things fast-tracked, even if they were only fast-tracked through the state. So maybe we don't get them fast-tracked through the national level. And I don't even know if this is possible, but it seems like uh, the governor has a lot of, you know, pretty broad-reaching powers at the at the state level to get things approved, at least for Georgians. So you can say, listen, you know, you can't give this test in Alabama. But you can give this test in Georgia, and it's been proven in South Korea. And we have a lot of South Korean, um, uh, we, we have a lot of South Korean nationals living in Georgia. So it's not like we we don't have any connections. We actually have some sister cities in South Korea. And in fact, the governor took a trip to South Korea. I think in the last 24 months. So uh, there's ways to tap into resources around the world on the testing front. We start having to figure out where those testing centers are going to be because people need to get tested. That's the only way we can know who's infected, who's not infected, who to quarantine, who's, you know, who's safe to, um, you know, be amongst a, a group of people that are all uh, not infected. And so you have to set up testing centers all over the state um, and and solve the testing uh, crisis. So that's number one. Number two, then is what do you do with the people that are infected? And so then you need to come up with quarantine villages that are triaged based on people's uh, severity. So there are a lot of people who are infected who have very mild symptoms, but they still need to be quarantined so that they're not spreading this virus. And those quarantine villages can be pretty casual. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example about how those can get set up. In the entertainment industry in Georgia, there are thousands of cast trailers, thousands upon thousands of them, that service the entertainment industry, when they're on location shooting or when they're at Black Hall and they need, you know, 50 or 100 trailers to, to deal with all of the crew base and the and the and the, um, and the and the and the cast of these shows. And that and that huge army of trailers could be distributed basically anywhere. I mean, we've got tens of thousands of Teamster drivers that specialize in moving these trailers that could be on a moment's notice activated and you have a rolling army of um of trailers that could be used to create these quarantine villages. So I think I think um you know try to come up with where do you quarantine people who are low level? Where do you you where do you quarantine people who do need some medical attention? They don't need to be um on a ventilator. They might not even need oxygen the way that like Boris Johnson is on oxygen right now. They might not need that, but they still need medical attention. So now you need a village that is kind of a moderate level um, coronavirus village. And then, of course, you have the more severe cases, which is what the hospital should be dealing with directly um, and where the most skilled personnel should be uh, focusing their attention. 
But, you know, to take a step back, we're going to need personnel at the low-level quarantine village. We're going to need personnel at the mid-level quarantine village. And then, of course, the most skilled personnel needs to be at the um, at the hospital itself, but somebody's going to be needing to organize all of these, all of the labor associated with every one of those quarantine villages, and that's kind of a a, a recruiting pro- recruiting process in and of itself. But now, let's say inside of the hospital, if we can if we can figure out how to triage and quarantine all of the cases that are not as severe, then we can deal with the real big issue, which is how do we keep people from dying. And ventilators are really one of the only answers for the people that have this in a very severe way. And so then those ventilators have to be um, uh, carefully managed to maximize the the use so that nobody is in a hospital needing a ventilator and not able to get one. So, you know, really, so th- that's those are the those are the two major places that we have to be thinking through the uh, crisis on the health side, which is testing and then the triage situation of quarantining and, and, and dealing with patients. Ryan, my question to you is that obviously everybody wants is looking to come out the other side. And as Dr. Fauci said, there may not be a return to normal as we knew it. What do you think, even if they find a vaccine, what the new normal might be? Well, who you know, I mean, obviously, um, all of these major sociological um, zeitgeist events have different long-term impacts. So when, um, you know, World War II is obviously, you know, uh, and really for people in World War II, it was Pearl Harbor, right? So the, the right. life before Pearl Harbor, life after Pearl Harbor. And then you think about people who were life before JFK was assassinated, life after JFK was assassinated. And then you think right. more, more recently you have, um, life um, before 9-11 and you have life after 9-11 and now we're going to have life pre-corona and we're going to have life post-corona. So what does a post-corona world look like? Um, well, think about all of the human virtues that are being explored in ways that we haven't explored them for a long time, most likely. I mean, some people obviously have because there's a lot of people doing very intentional life work, but in this situation, we're all thrust into um, quarantine that oftentimes is forcing us to, number one, spend a lot of time alone. Number two, spend a lot of time with those that we're close to without being able to run away. Uh, number three, if we have any sort of inclination toward addictions, whatever those might be, it might have become very difficult for people to access their addiction. So, you know, one of the things that I posted on Instagram that I was reflecting on is I said, you know, most rehab programs are 30 to 60 days. So maybe the universe just sent us all to rehab, right? <laughs> Which then I followed up with, I think it's at least better than the flood because that seemed like it was one of the uh, other ways that the universe has dealt with uh, wanting human beings to shape up. Um, so I think, uh, you know, rehab is probably better than the flood, but maybe that's what's happened is that we've been sent to 30 to 60 days of, of kind of detox, um, of whatever it is that we've been using in our collective lives and in our in- individual lives to anesthetize the pain of human life. And this is certainly going to be something that thrusts us into a deeper awareness of what those things are. 
and maybe a deeper awareness about how to heal from those situations because we're having to um, spend our time with a lot fewer options of what to do. So I'm noticing on Instagram and other places that people are working out more. People are reading more. People are having family dinners more. Uh, people are going on walks when they can get out more and valuing those walks and valuing being out in nature uh, maybe more than they ever were before. And so you start to add all of those things up. And so maybe we have a moment in time or at least a, a cultural moment in time and a generational moment in time where people start to value simple human goodness on a deeper level. Maybe they start to value family on a deeper level and have an, and be more intentional about family time and, and old school values like family dinner. Um, maybe people start to value uh, the environment more deeply because they say, you know, we don't need to commute as much as we commute. We've got internet access now built uh, fiber running all over this country and the world. And so we could be easier on the earth if we stayed home and work from home. Um, they might say the same thing about air travel, right? And so instead of having that, getting on a plane, which I've done tons of in my life, and flying to LA or New York or London to have face-to-face -face meetings for a week, we might just all be on Zoom. Right. And that might be just culturally okay. Before, that would have been considered kind of um, socially lazy or relationally lazy to not go spend the time face-to-face. And obviously, face-to-face -face time is more valuable for human beings and their relationships. But socially, maybe we just start to accept Zoom as a face-to-face -face meeting in a way that allows us to travel a lot less. So I think that could be a huge impact. Um, and then you get into the, the, uh, the, the real estate side of this. And so I think there's probably a huge impact on office space. And I think there's probably a boom in um, in land outside of the city, right? So people stop thinking about a farm. Like for like example, I'm quarantined on a farm, and I never necessarily thought about my farm as like a, as the ultimate quarantine uh, escape escape hatch. But it kind of is like the ultimate uh, quarantine escape. And so I think people will start thinking through second homes and this kind of uh, lifestyle as not just a place that they get away for the weekend, but as a place where they might have to get away during a pandemic. And so I think you'll probably see uh, real estate values in more rural areas escalate would be my guess. And then I think that, uh, that it's yet to be seen how this impacts all of our entertainment. You know, how is it going to impact um, going to the movies versus streaming movies back to your house? Certainly, I think this is going to be the catalyst for the movie industry to start direct-to-home releases where you could choose to go to the theater or you could choose to just download Fast and the Furious 9 for 100 bucks. And if it costs 50 right. bucks to go to the theater and it costs 100 bucks to stream it at home, streaming it at home might feel like a much better option that people would be willing to pay a premium for. And so um, if, you, if you stream it for 100 bucks, then the um, the theater companies that have distribution contracts with the production companies can all make money too, and then they don't fight against it. I mean, the only reason why Fast and the Furious Nine or whatever you want to make up a, a movie isn't streaming or, or isn't being released direct to home is because of the contracts that the production companies have with the theater companies, and the theaters don't want to be disintermediated. So I think right. you know, but this is forcing everybody to rethink that. Um, I think that'll have huge impact. I don't know how it's going to impact 
um, going to basketball games, baseball games, football games, you know, how do people respond um, in, in a pandemic zeitgeist to 100,000 person crowds? You know, I don't know. So anyway, I could keep going on what, how is this all going to affect the world? But that's some of the ideas that I'm thinking through about what comes after Corona. Right, right. We appreciate it. We appreciate your time. And um, I think that one of the things that makes you such a good businessman is how you look at everything 360. Um, so we'll be very interested to see what you're doing, um, when your op-ed in the New York Times is going to come out. <laughs> Can you get that published for me? I'd be glad to write it. Yeah, let's do it. Let's get it done. <laughs> yeah, hello. Well, I don't know if that's a I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse. I mean, I can't even imagine how difficult it must be to be a governor. Servant leadership is hard. Mm-hmm. It's very hard. Definitely not definitely not a way to make money. <laughs> and definitely not a way to and definitely not a way to chase freedom. But in times of crisis, God, do we wish we had a uh, Abraham Lincoln or a Winston Churchill? Oh. I mean, you, you, you don't, you don't, you don't realize how valuable those kind of people are until you have a crisis. I think they're out there. We just don't know who they are yet. Well, it's certainly a time where somebody could be stepping up. I keep waiting for somebody at the federal level to become like the hero, you know, the national intellectual hero of this of this moment. But it doesn't look like it's going to happen. That might be your op-ed, the title. Where is our hero? Yeah, fair enough. Yep. Well, Ryan, um, we would love to have you back again on Girls on Film. And I am really, really fascinated with what you're doing over in the UK. And maybe we could talk about that next time if you're up for it. I'm up for talking to you guys anytime. You know that. Thank you, Ryan. You're the best. You're the best. We are Girls on Film and we are out. Out. 